We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Okay, we're going to be in Psalms tonight, 21, Psalms 22. Psalm 21. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows in your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord. In your own strength, we will sing and praise your power. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. For my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths, like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked 
has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him all you offspring of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Thank you for that reading, Drew. Good evening. Welcome. I invite you to turn in your Bible this evening to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 is where we'll be this evening. And I look forward to uh, studying this with you as the Lord allows. As you turn there, let me just go to the Lord in prayer one more time and ask him for his help as we look into the text this evening. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we look into your word, may your spirit teach us, Lord, as, as, you, uh, as your word, Lord, is a tutor, instructor, Lord, and teaches us the way of godliness, and may we apply it to our lives as the man Ezra did in his own life, as we'll learn this evening. We ask for your grace and help in Christ's name, amen. In Ezra chapter 7, we meet the man from whom the whole book has taken its name. He hasn't appeared up until this moment, but now he comes onto the picture here in Ezra chapter 7. We'll notice as we look into this passage and in the upcoming chapters that the first person pronouns used like I and me or we used by Ezra, indicate that this is a personal record. Ezra is looking at this from his perspective and writing from his perspective of things. And chapters 7 through 8 will introduce the author of the book, while the remaining two, that is chapters 9 and 10, will show the moral disarray that he encounters upon his arrival in Jerusalem and how he, and how he uh, deals with those situations. As we look at verse 1 of chapter 7, Ezra writes this just at the very beginning. Look there. He says, now after these things. And the idea here is that by saying after these things, he is meaning to draw attention to the fact that the next formative step in the restoration of the Jews at Jerusalem is about to commence. We've 
read what happened before this concerning the rebuilding of the altar, the building of the temple, but now there's, there's a shift to a new formative event, an event which will further restore the Jews in Jerusalem upon the arrival of more Jews from Babylon and upon the reforms that Ezra brings. The major events of chapters 7 and through 10 begin to unfold, we know, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, as we see here in verse 1. And if this is Artaxerxes I, which I believe it to be, this puts nearly 60 years between the events of chapter 6 and chapter 7. So there's a some, somewhat of an extensive break here, uh, chronologically, or of years, between chapter 6 and 7. And uh, it's interesting to note that the events of Esther, which we're reading the book of Ezra here on Sunday mornings, occur during this gap between chapters 7 and 8. At least that's what I understand of the history. And that means that Artaxerxes I, who chapter 7 here is speaking about, is the son of King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, who made Esther queen. And we've been reading about that, as we said. So I thought of it, in a sense then, interestingly, Esther was the stepmother of King Artaxerxes I. Interesting kind of thought there. And perhaps Esther even had some kind of positive influence on the king during his young adolescent years. We don't know. That's just, of course, speculation. But nonetheless, God did use him. And perhaps there was a preparing of his heart through even his, you know, quote-unquote stepmother, Esther, up until this point that led to this point, we should say. Well, we begin this evening by looking at first Ezra's identity And then we'll look at Ezra's commission, and then finally Ezra's thanksgiving. It's not my intention to read even the whole of this chapter, at least at this moment, but to uh, look through it and to glean some things that I think are helpful to our understanding of what God was doing through the man Ezra, as God providentially worked. And so we begin by looking at Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, concerning his identity Let me read those verses uh, now, beginning in verse 1 again. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meraiot, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So as we look at these first 10 verses this evening, I want to simply begin by addressing Ezra's name. The name Ezra is probably a shortened version of Azariah, which means the Lord has helped. The Lord has helped. And as we've learned through our study here in Ezra, God had certainly been helping his people as they returned to Jerusalem, rebuilt the altar, and the temple amidst multiple instances of opposition. And now, through Ezra, God would further help Israel in a multitude of ways, as we'll learn. Ezra records his genealogy 
here in chapter 7, but it's an abbreviated version of his genealogy that we see in verses 1 through 5. In fact, there are actually 25 generations between Ezra and Aaron, his ancestor. And we can look at that uh, expanded uh, genealogy in 1 Chronicles 6. If you're interested in that, you can look at that at a later time. You might wonder exactly, you know, why, why is his genealogy abbreviated, shortened? You know, that is, why is it missing certain names? It doesn't record every person. Not all 25 generations are represented here. So why is that? Well, it's not actually that uncommon for genealogies to do that, especially when the purpose is not to simply list out all the names, but there's some theological purpose or some other kind of significant reason why the genealogy is being is being given. And that's the case here. Uh, the purpose of the genealogy is not simply to list the names, but to serve a greater purpose. A side note, there are nearly 130 years between uh, Sariah and Ezra, which means that there are probably a few generations omitted between the two. So it says that Ezra is the son of Sariah, but he's not actually the direct son, you know, like the father-son relationship. That is, more or less, he is the descendant of Sariah. Obviously, if there's a 130-year gap, it's unlikely that he's the direct son. There has to be perhaps three or four or five generations between the two. So what then is the purpose of this genealogy? Why does Ezra list it? What's so significant about it here? as it's recorded in chapter 7. Well, I believe the purpose in which, for which uh, Ezra records it here is to show that he is a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest, the first priest, and the one who God had ordained as you know, Israel's priest and from which all priests would come. And therefore, he had authority both from his descendancy, but also we'll learn from the Persian king Artaxerxes to introduce some of the reforms he did. You know, this wasn't just any kind of simple man. He was of the line of Aaron. He had a, uh, he was well, had a high standing, a, a good standing amongst the Jewish community for his descendancy, as well as uh, amongst the Persian king, as we'll learn as well. And so Ezra is a man of distinction and, in fact, has a very high standing in the Jewish community as a descendant of Aaron. We also learn from here in chapter 7 Ezra's occupation, so not only the significance of his name or the genealogy, but also we learn some about his occupation. What kind of man was Ezra? What did he do? Well, we find in chapter 7 that Ezra is introduced as both a scribe and a priest. Look with me at verse 6. It says, This Ezra, that is the one who's just been described through his genealogy, came up from Babylon and was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. And then if you look down further at verse 11, it says, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest. Hmm, interesting. Not just a scribe, but a priest. And then he says, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. And so Ezra here describes himself as not just a scribe, but also as a priest. We also learn this from uh, Nehemiah chapter 12 as well. We won't look at that this evening, but Nehemiah also describes uh, Ezra as a scribe and a priest. Well, we see that Ezra is described as a skilled scribe. He's described as a skilled scribe in respect, though, to the, specifically to the law of Moses. A scribe is a secretary, a writer of books, a recorder of books. There were scribes who recorded you know, the Old Testament to preserve it, and perhaps Ezra was of that kind of person, uh, recording and preserving the law of Moses, and he was skilled in his trade, if we can put it that way. Ezra was appointed by Artaxerxes for the specific task of acting as secretary in Judah, 
on behalf of the religious institutions there in the temple. And Ezra is a highly, was highly experienced. He's skilled in his trade. He's, he's, he's an expert, a professional of the highest order when it came to his knowledge of the law of Moses. Let me just pause and cause you to think about that. An expert in the word of God. How many experts do we have in the word of God? Maybe we think of theologians, pastors, others through history, reformers. But in a personal manner, are you striving to be an expert in the law of God and his word like Ezra? I hope so. I hope that you are seeking to obtain to that kind of level of understanding and experience. That experience that only comes by studying God's word perhaps memorizing great lengths of it, writing it down, meditating upon it, causing it to you know, infiltrate your heart and mind and soul so that you live by it. And that's the kind of man that Ezra was. He was skilled in not just the fact that you know, he was good at writing down words, but that he was skilled in his understanding, a knowledge of God's word that comes from a deep uh, desire to know it and to be in it. Well, verse 11, as we noted, describes Ezra as not only a scribe, but also as a priest who was an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Ezra was a Levite who served as a priest. Now, remember from our uh, earlier study that not all Levites were priests, but all priests had to be Levites. So not all Levites served as priests. Some just served as temple servants, doing other kinds of tasks, while certain Levites had the office of priest and served in that capacity. Remember back in chapter 2, some were excluded, that is, some Levites were excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't trace their ancestor, ancestry to, uh, you know, to, the royal, to the priesthood, to the Aaronic priesthood, and so they were excluded from serving as priests. But, of course, we see from even Ezra's genealogy here that he certainly was qualified to be a priest, and he served in that capacity. As a priest, Ezra was skillful and experienced, just as he was as a scribe, knowing the law of Moses. Perhaps he had large portions of the law memorized, and he was able to teach it and apply it properly, both to himself, and also to others. We'll learn that uh, from what we look at here in verse 10 in just a moment. Of course, none of us are serving as scribes or priests, although you may make the argument that certain people have served in kind of a scribal capacity, even with the work that's happening with uh, you know, the translations and uh, Bibles International, seeking to preserve the Word of God and to, uh, so that others can read it and have it for many generations to come. But regardless of that, we, unlike Ezra, who was a priest, still can be skilled and experienced in our knowledge of God's word. It takes practice. It takes meditation. It takes careful attention to God's word. It takes perhaps reprioritizing our lives so that it doesn't revolve so much around the menial things of life, but around the word of God. And that's exactly the kind of life that Ezra lived. Note, uh, though, back in verse 6, it says that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Here we see the author's emphasis on the ultimate divine origin of the Mosaic law. You know, we often see, you know, the book, uh, the book of Moses mentioned, or the law of Moses mentioned, or the book of Moses mentioned here in Ezra and Nehemiah, ascribing, you know, authorship to Moses in, in saying that. But here Ezra emphasizes that behind or beside, alongside of Moses, the human author, there is a divine author at work. The law of Moses had been given by God and therefore held divine authority. So when Ezra came and taught it, 
He wasn't simply teaching Moses' words or simply his own words, but teaching the divine word of God. And so it came with authority. Of course, Moses is the human author who wrote the first five books of the Bible, but the words themselves are God-breathed, like we learn from 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, from chapter 7, we learn not only about his name or his genealogy or occupation, but we learn much, too, about his character, even through one simple verse, and that is verse 10. Let me begin back, though, at verse 8. It says, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And so Ezra arrives in Israel in roughly 458 B.C., as we said, some 60 years after the events of chapter 6. And it says in verse 9 that this all happened according to the good hand of his God upon him, or some translations say the gracious hand of God Upon him, And that's a common theme that is of God's graciousness or God's hand being upon either an individual person like Ezra or at times the whole nation of Israel. We looked at uh, back in chapters 5 and 6, it says the, the, uh, the eye of the Lord was upon them. And it's a similar kind of idea that God was providentially caring, watching over them, protecting them, uh, guiding them in guiding others so that his divine purposes were accomplished. And so here again, we see God providentially at work in the life of Ezra. All these took place because God's hand was upon him. Verse 10 then says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. We learn that King Artaxerxes granted Ezra everything he requested. We see this uh, back in verse 6. It says, uh, The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So again, God's hand is upon Ezra. It's clear. And that's what Ezra wants us to see and understand that this isn't simply, you know, quote-unquote luck. This isn't chance, just simply coincidence or simply because You know, the king of Persia happens to be gracious to Ezra. No, Ezra wants us to understand that it is God's hand upon him that was causing all of these things to unfold in a way that would would accomplish God's divine purpose, cause more of the Israelites to return to Jerusalem, cause the, uh, the people in Jerusalem to flourish, to cause the temple worship to go on and be fruitful. All these things were according to the hand of the Lord, his God, which was upon him. You know, the king must have highly respected Ezra and thought him to be capable to complete the task at hand, which we'll look at in verses 11 to 26. And certainly that's the case. You know, Ezra was respected. King Artaxerxes appointed him as a scribe in Judah to fulfill the tasks that needed to be done there. So he was, he was certainly respected by the king. But what ultimately induced the king to show favor to Ezra was God's favor upon Ezra, as we've just thought about here in verses 6 and verse uh, 9. And the phrase, according to the hand of the Lord has God upon him, in verse 6 and 9, indicates God's providential favor over a person, as we've said. Ezra was a direct recipient of this favor as was the whole nation of Israel at times as well. I was thinking, and I I, uh, had my wife help me think through this as well, about other recipients of God's favor, other instances where God's hand was upon people. We came up with a number of people and another number of instances. Abraham, uh, the direct passage I'm not sure of, but Abraham says something like, if I have found favor in your sight, let this happen. And God allowed it to happen. We also see that God showed favor upon Noah. He showed favor upon Moses, Joseph in the Old Testament, as well as the Virgin Mary, who is called highly favored. 
I thought about this for a little bit about God's favor. You know, how do we re- how do we become a recipient of God's favor? And as I thought about it, it seems that in, in all of these cases, it's not something that can be coerced, as if you know we can demand that God's favor be upon us. But at the same time, there seems to be a common denominator between all of these people in God's favor. These are righteous people, God-fearing people, people who desire to know God, his precepts and his commands, and to be obedient to him. And so I think we can deduce from that that although we cannot coerce God to show us favor, we can be a recipient of it when we seek to know God, to be righteous before God, and to follow his commands. And I think we can even deduce that from what we are looking at here in Ezra chapter 7 this evening and say that the reason that God was directing Ezra and blessing him, the reason that God's hand was upon him, was because of the godly intent of Ezra's heart. And I think we find that in verse 10. He says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. We see first from verse 10 that Ezra prepared his heart. He prepared his heart. The word prepared means a deliberate positioning of one's heart or their entire being, their heart, soul, mind, and strength, as the Old Testament puts it. In other words, the inward action of Ezra's heart tilted in a certain direction caused him to take certain deliberate action. You know, the heart needs preparatory work to accomplish its goal, just as perhaps we might say the body needs preparatory work to run a long race. You have to prepare your body in a certain way so that you have the energy, the, the ability, you know, the capacity to accomplish that goal. Ezra's goal, we see as it's laid out in verse 10, required him to prepare his heart in a certain manner so that he could accomplish the goal that he had. What does that look like, though, in a practical way? How do we prepare our heart? Well, the author doesn't tell us here. Ezra doesn't you know, exactly or explicitly tell us how he prepared his heart. But I think there's a number of ways in which that can be accomplished. Perhaps it's a change of priorities, as we've already mentioned in our life, to reprioritize the things of God, the word of God, a change of desires, we might say, or affections. Perhaps it requires repentance from sin. Perhaps it requires us to forgive others who have sinned against us. Perhaps it means an, in, an increased love for God's people, a love for God's commandments. These are all ways that I think we can prepare our heart in order to accomplish godly intentions. Ezra did this, and we see that Ezra did this in order first to seek the law of the Lord. His mind and life were oriented toward the word of God. He sought it out. He sought or he sought, seeked the, the law of the Lord. This self-imposed firmness toward the study, practice, and teaching of the law speaks volumes about Ezra's character, does it not? And his life's purposeful intentions. He was sold out, we might say, for God and his word. We also learn that Ezra prepared his heart not only to seek it, that is to, to learn it, to allow it to envelop him and to, and to cause him to, to do what he did, but we also see that he prepared his heart in order to do it. What is it? The law of God, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, as he puts it in verse 10. That is, Ezra sought to apply the law of the Lord in his life, not only to seek it out, to understand it, you know, to have simply factual you know, information in his head concerning the law of Moses, 
but he also sought to apply it. That is, he obeyed its commands. Like James chapter 1 teaches us, he sought not only to be a hearer, or also, maybe we could say a teacher of God's word, but a doer as well. Simply hearing or teaching God's word does not necessarily imply that you're doing God's word. You can be, you know, simply, uh, you know, giving lip service. You can simply be, be a hypocrite and teach it but not do it. But Ezra sought not only to seek it but also to do it and to apply it to his life. The best kind of teacher is one who, who manifests that he believes it. He's a lover of the truth and a doer of the truth. And so Ezra sought to be that kind of person by preparing his heart in order to accomplish these goals. The third reason for which he prepared his heart, his heart was in order to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Not only did he seek it and do it, but he also sought to be a teacher of God's word. He wanted to cause others to learn about the statutes and judgments of the Lord so that they too could obey God's word. And that's what a godly person desires. He desires to be a discipler, a teacher, a proclaimer of the word of God. It's not a self-centered you know, reason in which we learn God's word to simply become you know, a better person more godly person ourself, true enough, you know, that's important. But a person who knows God and loves his word seeks to help others to do the same, to learn it, to seek it out, to do it, and to then be teachers of others. And that's really the process of, of discipleship as we think about it in, in the church age today. To be a discipler means to know God's word, or it requires that, but then it requires us to teach someone else. But it doesn't simply stop at that. The intention of the discipleship you know, relationship is then to train them to be able to teach others also. And that's exactly what Ezra was seeking to accomplish as he returned to Jerusalem. Commissioned not only by you know, the king of Persia, but really by God himself to be a teacher of the ordinances of God so that others would also obey it and to know it and understand it. Well, that's a little bit about Ezra's identity, including his character, but we move on in chapter 7 to look at Ezra's commission, and we see this in verses 11 through 26. And that's in the form of a decree that King Artaxerxes gives gives, uh, to Ezra. And we see here that Ezra was commissioned to return to Jerusalem in Artaxerxes' decree. Let me just call to your attention some of a number of notable aspects uh, this decree includes. First is the number of references to the law of your God. Look with me uh, at verse 12. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe, of the law of the God of heaven. Also in verse 13, Artaxerxes writes, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. Verse 21 says, And, and I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Verse 24, Also we inform you that it shall be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates, judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those 
who do not know them. That's amazing. Just look at the end of verse 25. A pagan king instructing Ezra to teach the word of God, the laws of God. Now, how do we, what do we chalk that up except to God's providential working, stirring up King Artaxerxes, providentially working in him, turning his heart like river, like a river, in order to accomplish his purpose? Wouldn't it be great if one of our presidents or rulers, our governor, instructed that God's word be taught in our schools or in the land? It'll be a part of our, our curriculum. Every child has to grow up learning some of these principles from God's word. Of course, we know it has to still be God's you know, effectual work in their heart to save them, but you know, imagine to have that kind of groundwork. Imagine you know, how it would affect the morality of our nation to simply hear God's word be read, to simply have you know, a class be on, you know, on you know, a survey of the Old and New Testament taught by a pastor or some other theologian. Yeah, exactly. But perhaps that won't happen, but that doesn't mean we still don't have this requirement, this instruction to be teaching God's word in whatever capacity, whatever venue that God gives us. And if God permits someone you know, to allow us to do this in the school system, like Pastor then said, then sign us up. We'll go for it. Well, not only does Artaxerxes providentially you know, refer here to the law of your God and show great significance upon the importance of that law, we also notice that uh, he allows for many provisions to be made for the Israelites and specifically for the worship of God in the temple. And this is seen through the provision of finances, free will offerings, and other kinds of gifts that the king provided uh, to Ezra to bring back. Uh, Look with me at uh, verse 15. It says, And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Amazing. And even verse 17, it says, Be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. I find it interesting. It seems that this is uh, in addition to already the, uh, the gifts that were given under, um, formerly under King Darius uh, and uh, as well as King Cyrus as well, that King Artaxerxes here is showing great benevolence to the people of God. Not only notable is the provisions of finances and other offerings as well as the, the uh, the authority to go out and buy things, to purchase things for the offerings. But also notice that Artaxerxes has great trust in Ezra. He sees him as a very trustworthy man. And this is seen in the fact that he entrusts him to spend the remaining finances according to the will of your God. Look at verse 18. It says, And whatever seems good to you and your brethren do, uh, to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Again, amazing. King of Persia, King Artaxerxes, shows and demonstrates a great, great trust in this man. So much so that he entrusts him with the, you know, these great financial provisions and allows him to do with, with it whatever he wishes according to the will of your God. Having noted Ezra's character, we can assume that Ezra was very careful with those finances and did just that, used it in a way that would be in accordance with the will of God. Finally, another notable aspect of this decree is the fact that King Artaxerxes recognizes that Ezra has God-given 
wisdom. Look with me uh, at verse 25. It says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. King Artaxerxes recognized, though maybe he didn't fully understand, that Ezra indeed was a man full of God's wisdom. And he trusted him, not only with the finances, but also to, to uh, install you know, leaders, magistrates, and judges to rule in the land. That's significant trust placed in a person to allow him to formulate you know, some kind of governance and some kind of regulation, some uh, you know, law in the land, as well as judges to enforce that law. That attests to the character of Ezra and certainly had a great effect on King Artaxerxes. Well, we close here in verses 27 through 28 with a word from Ezra, a word of thanksgiving to God. Ezra writes here in verses 27 and 28, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing in this put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Two things to note from these verses. First, we see that Ezra blesses God. Much like King David did at the dedication of the temple that David built. The blessing that Ezra gives recognizes God's sovereign rule over the hearts of kings. His ability, God's ability to use people to accomplish his purposes. God's ability and demonstration of his mercy in the lives of individuals like himself. Have you taken a moment to bless God for how he has used people? Maybe not specifically in your life, but just in general, used people throughout history to accomplish his purposes. Both, you know, in... in in the history of Scripture, but also up through the ages, how God used certain people so that his purposes may be accomplished, so that God's word would be preserved, preached accurately, and applied to the hearts of God's people. I pray that you've done that even this week as we've given thanks to God for his many good things and provisions. If you haven't, I encourage you to pause even this evening, later on perhaps, think and pray and thank God, bless the Lord, attest to him all that he has done, give him thanks. Give thanks for how God has extended mercy upon you. In a sense, God has shown his favor upon all of us, at least those who have been recipients of his saving mercy and grace. He has extended his gracious favor upon you. His hand has been upon you, calling you from your sin, saving you, placing you into his household. Ezra gives account of this, how God has specifically shown his mercy, in that he showed mercy to Ezra before the king and his counselors, before the king's mighty princes. As Ezra thought upon this and blessed the Lord, it caused his heart to be greatly encouraged when he saw all that God had done. God's providential care, his watch care, his protection, his guiding, his provision. As a result, Ezra's heart was encouraged when he noticed and reflected upon God's gracious hand. And this encouragement led him to action. 
verse 28 concludes with that fact that because of this, because he was encouraged, he gathered leading men of Israel to go up with him. He went about the business that was given to him, the commission from King Artaxerxes to return, and he was encouraged to do this because of God's gracious hand. And as we close this evening, may I encourage you to, as you reflect upon God's gracious hand, to take action, not only in thanksgiving, but to continue to do God's word as you recognize that God has blessed you? Would you seek to have the character of Ezra and prepare your heart to accomplish whatever purpose God has for you? Do you seek the law of the Lord? Do you seek to do it? And do you seek to be a proclaimer of it? Maybe there's something that's getting in the way of doing any one of those three things in your life. And if so, I encourage you to prepare your heart in the ways that we mentioned just a moment ago. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, as we close, may we, may we be encouraged as we reflect upon how you worked in Ezra's life how your hand was so evidently upon him as you move the heart of the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, as well as others before him like King Cyrus and King Darius. And Lord, we've seen throughout history you move in the hearts of others, pagan and godly alike. Lord, we thank you for your gracious favor in our lives. Lord, may we be righteous in your eyes. Lord, may you show your favor upon us just as you did Ezra and Moses and Joseph and Mary. Lord, we thank you for your gracious favor in sending your son and calling us to yourself. Lord, may we take a moment this evening to bless you for those kinds of things and how you have shown your mercy upon us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.